Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Tanishta Leo Vradker says haircuts and shopping before nights out as hospitality reopenings could be delayed a further week and new rules on kitchens puts the future of pubs that serve food in doubt. And as we're promised a three-stage easing of restrictions that will allow for inter-county travel for Christmas, are we facing into another lockdown in the new year? On our first panel tonight is Fianna Fáil TD, Willie O'Dea and Aoife McLeisett, Professor of Genetics in Trinity College Dublin and a member of the Independent Scientific Advocacy Group. And later, Justice Minister Helen McEntee set to answer questions in the doll tomorrow. What can we expect? And we'll talk to Virgin Media soccer pundit Niall Quinn about the passing of the genius of football, Diego Maradona. Get in touch on Twitter as always. Our hashtag is tonight's VMTV. Media news reporter Richard Chambers is with me now. Richard, we know that there's going to be three stages to this reopening. What's involved in each stage? What do we know at this point? Well, Kira, it's another story of leaks once again from the parliamentary parties uh, today. So we have effectively the outline of what the next number of weeks towards Christmas are going to look like. Phase one starting next week. It looks exactly almost like level three. You'll have the reopening of non-essential retail. We've heard of so many shops who want to open 24 hours again. That will become closer to being uh, into fruition from next week. Hairdressers and barbers, some of us have been waiting a long time for a haircut. They'll be back open again. Uh, religious services as well. That was actually a big thing there today at the parliamentary party meetings. They will be reopening uh, with congregations of up to 50. When you move down to phase two, which is going to be another couple of weeks down the line, we understand it might be around December 6th or 7th. What you'll see then is restaurants open and pubs that do serve food. It doesn't seem at this point like the wet pubs are going to get any reopening this side of the new year. And then we move to phase three and we aren't exactly sure now when that's going to be. We think it might be around December 19th, probably in the week running up to Christmas. That is when, and it is only at that point, that inter-county travel will be allowed. People will again be allowed uh, to visit their friends and families and the, those restrictions will effectively seep away whatever the outcome may be. Of course, we have had that warning about what might be on the other end of Christmas from Leo Varadkar, the Tonishta. Uh, earlier on, he was talking about the, po- the prospect of another return to lockdown in January. It's not possible to rule out uh, a return to level five at some point uh, next year. Um, but we're going to try and avoid that, uh, first of all, by uh, not uh, easing the restrictions too much. Uh, secondly, by reinforcing the public health messages. Uh, and it's our strategy to um, get to the point where the virus um, gets to the point where the vaccine is available so that we don't have to do that. But uh, I don't think anybody uh, can honestly rule that out as a possibility. But if it does happen um, at all, 
we would intend it to be much shorter, uh, more like two or three weeks than, than the six that we've experienced. We also heard, Richard, a little bit about what that Christmas period for households might look like. What will Christmas Day and the day afterwards be like? Who can you visit? How many people can you have in your home? How many families will be able to mix? What do we know? It's tough to say. This is actually the most guarded point of it. Maybe they're waiting for advice from Neffet. Neffet, of course, was meeting today about this. We do know that people will be allowed to once again uh, visit people. Hopefully over a two-week period is what uh, they're looking at. If you look at the situation in the UK where you have five days in the run-up to Christmas is the order there, it does look like we're going to have a longer period of that but quite exactly how that's all going to work, that isn't going to be announced yet. We also got some information about how the counties around Ireland are performing, and I don't like to pit them against each mm. other, but what we're looking at now is the best performing counties. These are the top performers now. This is a national problem, but it is always interesting to look at a local level how things are going. So these are the counties with the lowest 14-day incidence rate, the, probably the best guide of how uh, things are going with the virus. Wexford uh, doing uh, the best in the country. No cases today, 34.7. Kerry effectively has dodged the worst of this pandemic all the way through it, 52.8 again. Leash, you'll remember, of course, that was locked down for a period of time during the summer. Got things under control, down to 54.3. At Leitrim at 56. 6.2 and Galway has actually gone on quite the journey. It was up at about 329. It was one of the most concerning counties. Galway City was actually one of the hot spots of the virus. Look at it now, down from 329 all the way down to 62, which is very, very impressive. And I'm afraid to look at the next graphic because my own county is in this. This is the counties that aren't performing as well. Mm. Donegal, of course, has had issues for a long, long time now. We remember, of course, the, the regional lockdown there, 224.4. You do have to remember Donegal at the start of lockdown was up at 359, but it hasn't moved a whole lot in the last couple of weeks. It does have in Letterkenny, in Milford, as well as uh, other parts of Donegal, they are the highest incidence rates anywhere in the country. So that is still being very, very stubborn. Loud, another border county at about 208.7. And Limerick, another uh, sort of rural and urban mix there. That can be quite difficult, 188.8. Waterford has actually, uh, it had for a long, long time avoided the worst of this pandemic. It was people in, in Waterford were asking, what have they gotten right? This just shows again, things can flare up and change very quickly, 140.3. Roscommon, 128.62. All right. And finally, uh, Richard, we know, uh, despite what we heard today uh, from the Tanishta, that Neffet haven't actually met uh, or given their recommendation to the government. They met today. Any leaks from that meeting? Any understanding of what it is that Neffet is looking for at this point? They're very, very careful, Kira, to leak. They've, they, they've learned from all of that and they would I'd be adamant that they didn't leak in the first place. They, nothing's come out of that. So we might perhaps hear from them tomorrow if there is a press briefing at the Department of Health. You would have to ask the question, does what Neff would say at this point actually matter? We've seen so much of this plan already. It's been outlined both in the Daw by the Taoiseach. The Taunister has told us little bits of it. So whether or not Neffet has any input into this point uh, is, is another question entirely. Thanks for all of that information, Richard. Now joining me on the panel is Fianna Foyle TD, Willie O'Dea and Aoife McLeisett, Professor of Genetics at Trinity College Dublin and a member of the Independent Scientific Advocacy Group. And I want to start uh, first with you, Aoife. Do you welcome any easing of the Level 5 restrictions? 
Not particularly, no. I think we're losing our nerve just at the wrong moment. We saw there that, you know, there's some really good numbers from around the country. Galway in particular is one that's done extremely well from being a hotspot. It's actually on target to have um, days with zero cases and just one and zero cases in the middle of December. It just seems like the wrong moment to lose our nerve when we're nearly there. And even Roscommon, that's on your naughty step there. Actually, Roscommon is doing well. If you look at the 14-day instance, it doesn't tell you everything. Roscommon is really going in the right direction. So what do you mean by nearly there? Nearly there to what? Nearly there <coughs> to being down into single digits per day, into the kind of zone where we can really deal with this without lockdown. So lockdown is this emergency measure to get the numbers down to where we can deal with them, where the public health doctors can deal with them. So the public health doctors can do proper track and trace, but also can do outbreak containment. That's the other thing they do, but they can't do it for hundreds and hundreds of cases a day, but they can do it for a handful of cases a day. So what I want is a longer lockdown now in order to not have lockdown again. That's the purpose, that's <coughs> the idea. We're so talking- How much longer do you think it would take? It would be different for different counties. And I think that that's important. So you could be talking about certain counties like Galway or Kerry or something like that being able to open up sooner and other counties having to wait. And those counties that are open, the other counties, they have to stay locked down. So you don't just have everybody going on their, their jollies over to, you know, to the, the pub or the restaurant in the other counties. But you can do this. And then these green zones where we have essentially everything under control can expand to cover the whole country because the vaccine is coming, but we expect that the vaccine will be about a year. We're talking about Christmas next year when we'll have sufficient people vaccinated. We don't want to spend another year like this. But what about Christmas this year? Are you saying, because it's unlikely that, you know, the whole 26 counties uh, would be in the green zone yes. by the 25th of December. Are you saying that there'd be certain counties that would be told no movement, no going to see family, no mixing of households for Christmas? Is that really what you're realistically saying this would this would? I think be? mixing for, like having a family dinner is a different thing than going out to having pub visits and restaurant visits. I think if people want to have a family dinner with, so you know, say immediate family. There are ways you can do that. And I think we should be sympathetic and realistic about that. I, for example, would like to have a family dinner, but we're asking everybody to essentially quarantine. So my parents and my sister to essentially quarantine for the days before so that we can do that without worrying. And there are ways you can do that. And I'm very sympathetic to that. And I think things like that can happen, but that's different to opening up everything just a bit too early. I, I want everything to be open. I would like things to be as normal as possible. And I just don't want us to lose our nerve just right at the last moment. And Willie, we haven't heard from Neffet yet, but we understand that if Neffet had their way, we would not be easing level five restrictions just yet. Now, I don't know if they're advocating zero COVID as Aoife is, but they wouldn't ease the restrictions just yet because they say a lockdown in January is inevitable. But listening to the Tanishta speak today, mm. it sounded, Willie, to me, like Neffet's advice, you know, we will be guided by public health advice, totally sidelined. I, I wouldn't say that. I mean, <clears throat> if you look at the record to date, we have been largely guided, the government has been largely guided by Neffet's advice. I mean, I take Eva's point and I understand what she's saying, but you must remember, we locked down before and, uh, you know, we, we, we felt we were, uh, to use your own phrase, Eva, almost there and we opened up. Uh, to a considerable extent, and suddenly we were in a crisis, a major crisis, and we t we t come in with this, come back with this horrendous five week lockdown, uh, as a result. And you know, talking about, I mean, I, I take the point, and I know that in the UK that different regions are treated in different ways. It'd be very difficult in Ireland. It's, it's a different country. I mean, you know, can you imagine saying to people in, say, Galway? that you could have this type of Christmas and people, you know, across the, across the border in Clare, you can have a different type of... You, you'd we have did to have it already. 
Christmas. We did it with Lee Shafferty we, we, and Darren. We, we, we did, we did, and 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 uh, the results, uh, the, the the feedback wasn't particularly good. If I can tell you that, I, I think the government will be very slow mm. to take that attitude again. Okay, but, but, but just but to go anyway, back to the other point that I was back, making there, is the government very slow this time to listen <clears throat> no. to Neffet because no. we seem to have an outline of a plan, and we you haven't even heard of Neffet's advice. So. What's happened? Well, look, the government is in touch with Neffet informally on a continual basis, you know, so, so the government would be fairly fairly clued into what Neffet are thinking even now. And, you know, you also look at the figures. The figures, they came down substantially at the start of the five-week lockdown, maybe as a result of the, of the level three lockdown. But they're not, um, I suppose, where Neffet wanted but, them to be, no, which was well, less than 100 well, they stalled, cases a day. Yeah, they, sto they stalled, and the, the, the downward trajectory has, has, has resumed now for the last couple of days, as far as I can see. The other thing, of course, to mention is that this is the second wave this is the second wave of COVID, and the mortality rate uh, for this particular wave is only about ten percent of what the of the mortality rate for the first wave. We're, I think, we are third in Europe in terms of fighting in, in terms of the fourteen-day average per hundred thousand. I think only Iceland and Finland are ahead of us. So, as a country, we've done very, very well. And what I find, you know, dealing with my constituents on a regular basis, well, usually through Facebook and uh, uh, t t t t technological means of communication and from a safe distance, is th there's a great deal of, of pandemic fatigue or lockdown fatigue, maybe I put it that way, at the moment. And I think we heard some of that fatigue in Fianna Fáil's parliamentary party meeting which this evening, <laughs> uh, which I know you missed, I know you weren't there, but apparently what came out of it was that there was a number of backbench TDs looking for two things, pints and prayers is what they're calling it, pints and prayers. So... When it comes to pints, for example, mm. where do you stand? Do you think there should be this, um, you know, difference between wet pubs, dry pubs, pubs with a kitchen, pubs without a kitchen? No, What's I, your position? I, well, I always, I always thought, you know, the distinction that was made initially for the initial lockdown between wet pubs and dry pubs was quite artificial. Uh, I think that the, the purpose of the distinction was to keep as many people out of pubs as possible. That, that was my reading of the situation. Because when, I, I don't, I, I, frankly, I can't see the distinction. Because, you know, when, for the brief period of two or three weeks there, before the level five lockdown, when wet pubs are open, I made it my business to check out the situation in my hometown of Limerick. And, you know, what I found actually on the ground was that these people, they, they were almost overzealous in the way they were maintaining the social distancing, the sanitizers, etc. So do you think all pubs I do. I, I don't see open. I don't see any reason for distinguishing between pubs that serve food or have the capacity to serve food and pubs that don't have that capacity. And you know, look, what what publicans will say to me is that if you have more places, more, more, more pubs that people can come into, you have a better chance of maintaining social distance because you have greater space, obviously. Uh, Aoife, do you agree or do you think there's any way that we can allow all of our pubs, wet pubs, dry pubs, gastro pubs to open safely? I think with regret, no. I'd love the pubs to be able to open, but I think it's just the wrong thing to do right now. I think if we wait longer, we can get them open and we can probably keep them open. But you mentioned the summer. What we did wrong in the summer, we were tantalisingly close to having everything eliminated but we let we failed on a few steps so we didn't support the public health doctors the way they needed to be done we didn't restrict international travel we need to tell people to quarantine or restrict travel if you look at the virus that's circulating in Ireland at the moment and in other countries it's come from 
tourism. Okay. 60% we're, and you know, we're, going to, we're going to come we're back to that point of international travel in a moment. I just want to um, speak to a publican. Uh, he's on Skype at the moment, Ronan Lynch, who's the owner of the Swan Pub in Dublin. Now, Ronan, during level three plus, you were able to serve food and stay open, but you don't have a kitchen. That's correct, yeah. There is an opportunity to open up within the guidelines. Obviously, all the food-led pubs opened up on the 29th of June, and we saw the opportunity in the guidelines to open up. We opened up in September. We set up the same as a restaurant. The only difference was we had outsourced our, our food to a local supplier, which is only 10 seconds away from the pub. We operated a controlled space. We spec'd out our premises in accordance with all the guidelines. Our staff were retrained. Our customers bought in, and we were inspected by the guards several times. Everybody was very, very happy with the way things were run, the guards were. And I think that um, by and large across the uh, industry, there was a high level of compliance with the guidelines from all the pubs. Um, I think currently, if this current policy is followed through that basically takes away our ability to trade, it just kind of really um, you know, takes away our Christmas for us. And um, we pivot our business to get people back working. And now Christmas is going to be taken away from us um, so you won't be able good. to open, if they stick with this sort of distinction between pubs that have kitchens and a chef and pubs that don't have kitchens and a chef, albeit you say you're able to get pizzas from you know, a place next door 10 seconds away, you will lose out, you will lose your Christmas trade. And what would that mean yeah. for your business? Yeah, that's that's our business gone. I mean, look, it's it's a disaster for our business. Like we were looking forward, we've invested heavily in our business during the lockdown. Uh, we've upgraded our premises. We, we thought we were on, like we were told by the CMO in September, that our business was going to open. And um, he said all pubs will open, um, acting CMO at the time, Ronan Glynn. And we feel that we've been misled by the government. Like people have, we've been led up the garden path three or four times by government at this stage, um, five or six times they told us we can open and we keep on restocking and um, taking staff on. And we've been let down again by government and um, just totally disappointed with the government, find their behavior totally disrespectful towards an industry that has made a huge sacrifice um, you know, for 7,000 family businesses and 50,000 employees, it's just uh, kicking us while we're down. Um, they're punishing our business. Put that point, uh, Ronan, to mm -hmm. Willie O'Dea, kicking us when our, we're down, punishing our business. They really feel that they can open in a way that is, you know, safe, social distance, get all of the staff to wear masks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Where is the evidence that says that his pub shouldn't open next Well, week? I agree. I mean, I, I, I find myself in agreement, basically, with Ronan. I mean, as I say, I went around Limerick myself uh, and my friends asked my friends to check it out. They were, they were, they were almost overly zealous, as I say, in, 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 in their efforts to, to, to do what was right. And uh, I, I, so will you I, be putting pressure then on? I will. Uh, Michael Martin my, to my, change his position my, on this. My, yes, my recommendation, my recommendation will be that they should, for a period over the Christmas, open open all pubs. And the other thing I just want to make in relation to the point made by Aoife, and I understand what she's saying that now is not the time to relent. Like you carry on until January or February or something. But you must remember, Aoife, that Christmas is a time of big business. It's a time of big revenue for a lot of small businesses like pubs and some of the smaller retail businesses. And, and I just put I know, point I know, to yeah. Uh, Aoife, yeah, just to see yeah, what you yeah. have to say about that. It's, it's a business. really important time. <clears throat> it keeps pubs viable in those really quiet uh, winter months. 
It definitely is. I'm sure it is. And I'm, this is an economic problem and needs an economic solution. But I don't see how it's good for businesses of any size to be opening and closing and opening and closing all the time. So, I mean, we should... Can I just put that actually... Uh, sorry yeah. to cut across you, but I just want to put that uh, point to Ronan. Is this just an economic problem that needs, a, you know, an economic solution, Ronan? I mean, if the government can give you further grants, further investment, will that be enough to keep your doors open? No, like, like we're out of business for the last eight months. We have to re-establish our businesses. We have to start somewhere. We just need our business to start. We just need to get back in business. Um, and economics will only go so far. I think there was a comment there yesterday that no, no kind of level of government uh, support can replace the loss of business over December. And that was said by a government uh, minister of state yesterday. We need to get our businesses back to We've made well, a huge sacrifice. What is your business and other uh, publicans in this country? <clears throat> what is their next steps if the government decides that they are not going to allow wet pubs or pubs that don't have a kitchen to open this Christmas? Well, they're hugely frustrated. There's a huge level of uncertainty. They're all at breaking point. They need to see a pathway, a structured pathway to reopening, and they need to see supports. We all know that the vaccine is on the way, but to getting from December to the point where the vaccine is rolled out is really important. And we need to see a pathway to reopening the economy. We've been promised this time and time again. The government needs to stick to their guns and give us that okay. certainty that we need to take our business. We need, all right. and we need it, like obviously we're all, of, we're all the, we're, we have huge outgoings with financial commitments and maintaining staff. We just need that certainty going forward. If uh, I see you nodding your yes. head there in agreement, but Absolutely. I know you also are critical of the government because you say the strategy now seems to be Locked in again in January, wait for the vaccine. I think it's an absence of strategy. I think so. This, the, what, what it looks like is that we're just going to ride between level five and level three for another year, which is far too long. I, I think that's intolerable. And we're talking about lockdown fatigue already. There will no, be no appetite for lockdown number three. We had such solidarity for the first lockdown. People now accept that there's this lockdown. If you see the opinion polls, they agree that it's appropriate or it could be even stronger, but nobody's mm. enjoying it. Nobody likes this. And we don't want to do it a third time. We should not waste the effort that everybody has made and just throw this all away again. Well, but, is but, that but the government's but, strategy? But what, is the, what is the alternative? I mean, the alternative obviously is a, t a targeted strategy whereby you get the data to find out where the greatest dangers are and they're in the process of doing that at the moment. Now, the, the, the mo When do the, they expect to have that data? Well, well I, think, that data I, think, I think, I think, I think, I think they will have it. I think they will have it. It, it will play into the advice which the government will be getting over the next day or two. But what else does the government, I suppose, have in its arsenal at this point? Because it was interesting to hear Leo Varadkar say today, mm. we're going to open up at Christmas, but look, we're going to be closing down in January. Like, it was almost <laughs> inevitable. Well, I what think, other plans has the government got? To be got? honest with you, know, I think we could have done without that comment, quite frankly. I mean, I mean I, I'm mean, i not... He's speaking you know, the truth. I, well, well, no, he's speaking what he thinks might be the truth. He doesn't always get it right. I mean, he's anticipating that, that, that uh, the situation is going to deteriorate again over the Christmas. I, I think if the thing is carefully managed and if people act responsibly, I, I think that's that's not a necessarily that's not a foregone conclusion. I think it's unfair. That is not that is not a foregone conclusion. Onus well, on people to act well, responsibly. We have to take well, public health measures. Think, we have to give well, them correct course, guidelines. Lisa, yeah, but I think it's most unfair to say to people who have who have really acted responsibly that you can't even have a Christmas now that you you know we 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 let you out of your cocoon sometime in the new year. I mean, you know, people people All want right. to come home. People want to mingle. It's a family time. Okay.
businesses need to survive. Uh, unfortunately, we have to leave it there. But my thanks to Ronan Lynch from the Swan uh, Pub in Dublin. Uh, we wish you the best. And Professor Aoife McLeish, thank you for your time. Fida Foyle TD, Willie O'D is staying with us, where after the break, we're going to be asking what we can expect when Justice Minister Helen McEntee answers questions in the Dáil tomorrow. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Very welcome back. Now, Fianna Fáil TD, Willie O'Dea is still with us. And joining him on the panel is Gary Gannon from the Social Democrats. And Dr Laura Cahillan, law lecturer at UL, is also with us on Skype. And I want to start with you, Gary, because the Social Democrats, is, along with all the other members of the opposition, really collapsed the business you know, committee yesterday and seems to have forced the government's hand here in getting the Justice Minister, Helen McEntee, to come into the Dáil and answer questions in you know, an informal Q&A session. So, did your strategy work? Do you feel you've embarrassed the government into this U-turn? It wasn't our intention to collapse the business committee or embarrass the government to anything. What we were looking for was parliamentary oversight of a very considerable decision that's being made. And the fact that it's taken so long, the fact that we had to make so much noise in order to make it happen has been unfortunate. But what will happen in the Dáil tomorrow, and what should have happened long before this, is that we'll have parliamentary scrutiny and oversight of a very important judicial appointment to our highest court. That's all we asked for. There was no need for any theatrics or anything other than that. We just wanted the Justice Minister to come into the Dáil and answer questions. It's happened previously, and we're glad that tomorrow it's going to happen again. Uh, well, Eudy, why did it take the Justice Minister so long to agree to this? To be perfectly honest with you, I have absolutely no idea because <clears throat> I've already expressed my view publicly that I didn't have any objection to what was being demanded, namely that the Minister come in and uh, deal with questions in a separate forum to the ordinary justice question time because uh, that's, that's how these matters are always dealt with. So, I mean, I can't understand it. The argument was put forward, I think, that the government was worried about the idea that it might in some way interfere with the separation of powers. But you see, what that seems to overlook is that the appointment of judges is a political matter. Mm. The appointment of judges is a political matter. I've always taken that view. I've always taken the view, incidentally, uh, for the past 25 years, and I suppose it's an indictment on me and members and successive governments since 1995, that the system, the system that was brought in to um, change 
the way judges were appointed is absolutely bonkers and farcical and should have been long since changed. But, you know, changes in the air now. The Judicial uh, Appointments Bill is going to be reintroduced, I think, fairly shortly. Uh, but uh, as I say, I, for the life of me, I can't understand why the Minister, unless she genuinely believed that it would in some way interfere with the separation of powers, I can't understand why we've had to wait three weeks for this. Well, do That's... you have any understanding, well, Gary can... Gannon, why you've had to wait so long for the, the Justice Minister to come in? Because the suggestion surely is, even though she's saying there's nothing to hide, that there was something to hide within this process. I mean, it appears like there's something to hide, but it's always been... This has always been the way that... Well, it's been... What we're going to see tomorrow is we're going to unravel a dark cloak in terms of how judicial appointments are being made in this country and have been made for a long time. And you'll see oppositions placing scrutiny on that and asking what was the connection, what made this particular appointment more suitable than other people who may have put themselves forward. And if it so happens that actually what made the person special was a connection they may have had to a political party. But we know... <laughs> to be clear, because that would potentially infringe the separation of powers, that we are not going to be talking about the merits oh, of no, candidates. Oh, no, there's absolutely no suitability. There's no question about the suitability of the candidate. It's the process and the appointment. That's what we'll be discussing tomorrow. But the process and the appointment in this instance, well, actually in all instances in terms of how judges have been nominated, has been somewhat... People haven't really seen below the cloak of that. And we want to unravel that a little bit tomorrow. Um, just want to go to uh, Professor Cahalan um, there, who's joining us on Skype. Professor, what questions need to be answered tomorrow specifically? Well, I think the opposition will have a number of questions in relation to the timeline on all of this, in relation to who exactly was involved in the decision making process, and also on the criteria that was used to make the decision in the first place. And I think they'll be looking to find out, first of all, exactly when the expressions of interest from the three judges were received and who received them, because I think that will be important, first of all. And in terms of the timeline, this was all initiated back in February, and the judicial appointments review board sent the name Seamus Wolfe to the former minister, uh, Charlie Flanagan, in early March. We don't know what happened at that stage. We don't know whether any of those applications were assessed. We don't know whether there were any discussions. And it's unclear why there was such a long gap then until the appointment in July. So that's another thing that I'm sure the opposition will be asking. And the government may say that they didn't want to go ahead and make such a crucial appointment when there were ongoing protracted negotiations in terms of government formation. And that would be a reasonable excuse if it wasn't for the fact that they did go ahead and appoint um, Ms Justice Mary Irvine as president of the High Court in that period. So it's also important to find out um, who exactly was involved in making the decision. And the minister gave the impression last week that it may have just been simply her making this decision, which would be very unusual, um, although entirely possible. And if that is the case, then we also need to know what criteria exactly was used to assess the candidates. So it's essentially a question of when, who and how. And just to be clear, none of those questions do get into the suitability of a candidate, do they? Exactly. So it's very important that all the questions stick to the process and the procedures because it does become very problematic if the debate descends into questions on individual candidate CVs, for example. And obviously, if it did, the Ceann Corla would simply just shut that down. But there is plenty of scope for questions on the appropriateness of the procedure itself. So there would certainly be no need to get into those types of questions. All right. Uh, Willie, this was seen, I suppose, as a Fine Gael appointment. And yet there has been huge criticism levelled at your leader, Michal Martin, for the last uh, couple of weeks about this. So a Fine Gael process that once again has damaged Fianna Fáil. Well, 
you know, we're part of a, a, a coalition government and, you know, uh, there's collective cabinet responsibility. And I suppose Taoiseach felt that it was his, his obligation now, albeit that all this happened during the lifetime of the Fine Gael government. I, I think the big problem here is that the, 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 uh, the, the names that came in for consideration to Helen McEntee came from two different sources. Because if you're a barrister or a solicitor, if you're not on the bench, you go through the Judicial Appointments Board. Whereas if you're a sitting judge and you're looking for a promotion, you go direct. Now, the question arises as to whether whether, uh, you know, but the, 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 the applications from the two different sources are given equal consideration. So, but, but it's very important to say the Judicial Appointments Board don't recommend the person. They, merely, they don't recommend. No, that that's very true. important to say. They merely yeah. to, yeah. to gauge the suitability yeah. well, of a well, person actually, in terms of the qualifications. This has been a thank you for that. That, that is great. You no, know, what we what we when, in in the, during the lifetime of the last government, our then spokesman and justice Jim O'Callaghan put forward a bill that simply said the judicial appointments board or some version of it should put forward three names and rank them in order of importance, one in order of preference, one, two, and three. And if the government didn't appoint, say number one, mm. or if they appointed somebody other than the, the three, that should be that should the government should have declared that probably is the reason why and answer questions about it. What question will you be asking tomorrow, Diagan? We will be asking about what was the qualifying criteria that by which this per a person was selected to be a Supreme Court judge. What was the criteria and how did that measure against some of the other nominees who potentially been placing themselves forward? And is it your suggestion, your thinking, uh, which has been suggested um, and rumoured over the last couple of weeks, that this appointment was sort of agreed long before this new government actually started? It would appear to be the case. I mean, it's already documented that neither the Taoiseach nor the leader of the Green Party had any say in this particular nomination. So, I mean, we would we will get to the bottom of that. Yeah. And do you agree with that, Willie D? Do you think this was agreed, this appointment, and that it was just really the case that uh, Helen McIntyre had to rubber stamp it? Well, it's, 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 it's possible. I mean, there's a number of possibilities. That's one of them, obviously. I look forward... There were some very good questions suggested by uh, Professor Cahillan there. I look forward to the opposition asking those questions tomorrow, and I, I even look forward even more to the answers. Mm. I just want to go back to um, Dr uh, Cahillan, because you have been calling all along, uh, Doctor, for reform on judicial appointments. Do you think now we're actually going to see that? Yes, well, hopefully this can be one silver lining out of this whole episode now that people are finally beginning to realise the importance of reform in the judicial appointments process and the fact that our current system is simply not fit for purpose. I mean, only last week, we Ireland got a black mark from the Council of Europe in its latest Greco report for the fact that we have failed to implement this reform again. Um, and I really struggled to understand the level of opposition to this in the period of the last government. Um, and, you know, as Willie says, they're both Fianna fall and the the, the um, Department of Justice both had bills on this so it's it's very unclear why exactly that process um, was undermined but okay. you know it is really positive now to see that all parties seem to be on board with this and both the government and the Arachthus Justice Committee are saying that this will now be a priority. All right uh, thank you uh, for your contribution Dr Cahillan. I just ask you one quick question um, Gary. Will the Social Democrats be pushing for all pubs to be reopened next week? We'll be pushing for whatever communication is relayed on Friday to be very clear and very consistent. Um, so but you must have a position on it. Of course they have a position. I represent the city centre community that's been decimated. So in terms of, we'll be adhering to the safety guidelines, but they need to be sensible.
So in terms of, that's all we're asking. Just make them sensible, make them logical. If you're telling us that a pub needs to open for 90 minutes and food needs to be served, well, explain to but me. But do you agree with this distinction that they're talking about today? Uh, potentially, it'll be food um, I, served in the kitchen by a chef. Those pubs will only be allowed to open. I think communication is very, is very important here. And if you're telling me that a person has to have a chef on site, then they're going to need to explain to me how that will stop the spread of the pandemic because that's, that's what's going to be undermining many of these suggestions. All right, we will leave it there. My thanks to Dr. Laura Cahalan, to Willie O'Dea and Gary Gannon. And after the break, we'll be remembering Argentinian football legend Diego Maradona. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're very welcome back. Now, earlier we heard of the sad passing of Diego Maradona, the genius of football, and Virgin Media's soccer pundit Niall Quinn joins me now. Niall, a really sad day, I think, for the international soccer community and all those around the world who loved Maradona. For you, was he the greatest player of all time? Yes, Kira, I really believe he was. He, he was an exceptional talent, and as you say, uh, one of the biggest floodlights of, of, of global football has gone out tonight and it's, it's so, so sad, it's dreadful. Um, a man who just gave us all so much joy, was terrifically gifted, you know, ahead of his time and uh, played when the pitches weren't great and when defenders were allowed to kick you the length and breadth of the field and he was just a, an unbelievable skilled person, uh, he scored great goals. But the biggest thing about him was he played with his heart. His heart was open. Everything he did, it appealed to the common man. And uh, I don't think there's ever been a player like him that showed so much emotion with so much brilliance. And of course, he had a troubled uh, time of it off the pitch. And it, and it was as if on the pitch, you know, that he was at his happiest, he was at his best, and he performed for the world. And the world is in mourning tonight for the man that I believe is the greatest footballer of all time. And I suppose the people and the country that he performed for best of all was his own native Argentina. What did he do for that team? Talk to us about his performances, particularly in those World Cups. Yeah, so he very nearly went to a World Cup as a, an 18-year-old. He'd played a couple of times and he didn't get picked for the 78 World Cup, which, of course, Argentina won. So, you know, it was, um, <laughs> I guess, uh, you know, a, a tough one for him to do. But he, he started to come good after that. And his team went backwards. But he then took hold of it by the scruff of the neck. And, of course, in, in 86, they, they say, you know, that almost single-handedly he led his country to World Cup glory. Not quite true, but his, uh, his role, in, in that particular tournament in 86 in Mexico he scored five goals laid on five goals literally brought the tournament home to them and he's been hero worshipped ever since and also the, 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 I suppose the tragic side of him where we saw his uh, personal life tumble and the, the you know the, this great 
I suppose, graceful god of the pitch, sort of dwindling in his private life. That interacted at such a, such a young age, you know, with us all. It, it took us all, you know, to heart. We all felt as if um, we were on him on his struggles off the pitch. We loved him for what he was doing on it. And he was just big, big news everywhere. Um, th this guy was probably bigger than football. And, um, he, he, you know, it's just so sad thinking about it. I can remember the very first sort of uh, times I saw him, he was keeping the ball up as a young kid and we saw it on TV. He was doing things that street footballers do now. And it was, it was just obvious this guy was going to be the best. And then for his life to, to sort of pan out the way it did, it's tough to take, there's tragedy in there. But at the same time, there's the brilliance that we'll all remember. And I was very lucky, uh, Kira. I was part of the Irish team in Sevilla. We were playing Spain in a World Cup qualifier in 92. He was playing with Sevilla at the time. And he, uh, he, he didn't turn up for training. We were all at the training ground. We had trained. The Sevilla players had come to train after us. And, and he didn't turn up. And we were all really, you know, we were gutted. And we thought we, we were sort of, even though we had a big World Cup match the next night, we were really hoping he'd come. And then all of a sudden somebody told us, no, wait, he's going to come. He's going to be here on his own. And every Irish player waited behind for about 35 minutes, 40 minutes. And he came in a, in a beach buggy, holding onto the bars of the top of a beach buggy. And there must have been a crowd, six, seven, eight deep, that, uh, that came with him onto the training park. He had a bag of balls. He put them on the uh, edge of the box. He called a young kid over to get in goal. He put the six of them in the top corner, got back in his beach buggy and, and headed off and waved at everybody. And it was an amazing moment because we were all international players and we all just clapped. We'd been waiting for him so long. Um, but it was still a great thrill for us all. Nile, it was worth holding yeah. back for that and extra 30 or 40 minutes just to see a genius you in action. As you've said there, a genius, mm. but definitely a flawed genius um, with a complicated, troubled history. But ultimately, tonight, how do you think people will remember him? Oh, everybody will remember him most fondly as, as the player who brought so much joy to us. He played with his heart wide open, with all that ability that he had for us to bring it into our hearts. And I certainly did. Um, I, took, I took it really badly uh, earlier on when, when I uh, heard the news, as lots of people in the football world will. Um, I got my family during lockdown to watch a couple of documentaries on him and we became engrossed. Uh, well, I was already engrossed, but my family even, they rang me tonight about the news and uh, they only came into the Diego Maradona story now in, in 2020. And he's been doing that to everybody. He has, he has touched lives. The man brought electricity, good or bad, when, whether it was you know, tough news that we were reading or good news. He led an, an incredible life and um, you know, he, he's kind of released from some of that now, it's some of the pain in, 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 in a way. But I'd love him, and I'm sure we all will, to be remembered purely as, uh, as the greatest footballer that played the game. The legend lives on. Thank you for that lovely tribute, Nile. You're welcome. An emotional Niall Quinn there, the lovely tribute. Now, joining me in studio is Dan O'Brien, Chief Economist at the Institute of International and European Affairs. Uh, Dan, we've been talking all evening on the programme about this three-stage reopening of the economy and it appears that hospitality, at best, will be allowed to reopen in stage two, so not at the beginning of December as it clearly wants. What impact will that have? Well, it'll clearly have uh, a very big impact on all of the people employed in that sector. Sector, uh, the people who run businesses in that sector. It's been a disastrous year for them. Uh, you know, it's it's a really, really tough time. And, uh, you know, the, tr the tragedy of this is that, you know, people going into enclosed spaces together, you know, we've seen in Europe over the past five weeks, cases have soared again almost as badly as in the first outbreak in the spring. 
Um, so, you know, there, there unfortunately uh, will be a role for, for these kind of restrictions, unfortunately. But what will the impact, do you think, be on the economy in terms of, you know, businesses closing, permanent job losses? Do you envisage that happening? Well, like, look, you know, a business, for, for a business to trade is like for a person to breathe. And if you're, you know, if you have oxygen cut off for a long period of time, you know, cells start dying, you start getting gangrene. And unfortunately, this, this, that's what's happened to the economy because of this. Many businesses will not reopen, you know, at any time in an economy. There are always some companies that are on the edge of going out of business and new companies starting. What we see in a period like this is that you just get a much more accelerated death of companies and businesses. And yet I would imagine if we had a government spokesperson here this evening, they would say there has been a significant number of grants and loans and credits being put in place to help uh, those businesses. And we heard um, Professor McLeish say earlier today, look, it's just an economic problem. It needs an economic solution. Support the businesses through that. Is that possible? Well, that, that is happening. You know, we see that across, across Europe, that governments have stepped in in quite unprecedented ways, whether it's wage subsidy schemes to help companies with the costs of their employees or other kinds of grants and, and supports. And, you know, that is the right thing to do. Governments need to support that productive capacity of the economy so that hopefully with these new vaccines that we can get back to some sort of normality and as many businesses as possible are saved and therefore as many jobs as possible. But can you put a figure on it? If we do oh. not allow the pubs to reopen, you know, for this year, what is the cost in terms of revenue? You know, Kira, it's so difficult to measure this. Like, you know, looking, looking at the economic data this year alone, it is really difficult to just evaluate the data because there's so much going on and it's so distorted, particularly in the labour market, because of uh, what's happened. You know, predicting what's going to happen in the future or even measuring right now these things is just extremely difficult and it's, it's, it's not possible to do with any degree of certainty. Does it worry you when you hear the tarnished Leo Radker saying today, predicting, even though it's impossible, as you say, to predict anything at the moment, that another lockdown, albeit a shorter lockdown, is almost inevitable in January? Well, you know, that, that may be the case. It's the government is very clear. When Taoiseach announced this second lockdown, he was very explicit in saying that this was a core of the government's strategy to deal with it. Um, one thing I would hope is that I have yet to see any good evidence that non-essential businesses, like why is buying a pair of socks more dangerous to your health than buying a, a litre of milk? It's just not, and I've seen no evidence. And the decision by government to shut down big areas of the economy and what's so-called non-essential retail, for example, um, just doesn't, I have yet to see the evidence to support that in terms of, of it helping suppress the disease. And if we go into a third lockdown, one might hope that if the evidence is not presented, that the government will not shut those businesses. And that's, you know, level five has led to an increase of more than 100,000 people being dependent on the state. There has never been Okay, apart from earlier this year, there have never been more people on unemployment benefit in the history of this state. And that includes the worst, darkest moment of the property crash period. And your point has been all along, Dan, that never have we seen so many young people, you know, in receipt of some sort of unemployment assistance in a time where you think young people should be allowed to sort of continue to live their life as normally as possible. Well, we need to, to, I suppose, look at these lockdowns now differently. 
Look, that, as you say, that's, that has always been my view that, you know, the, the state statisticians yesterday came out with the 22,500 registered deaths in this country in the first 10 months of the year. There wasn't a single death from COVID of somebody under 25. So younger people are really, the impact on their health is tiny, tiny, tiny. Yet the impact for them in the labor market for 20-somethings has absolutely been catastrophic. And, you know, we have to look at this trade-off for younger people who have very little health risk, but massive impact on the on their well-being, on their economic and their their financial well-being in terms. So, of what that. are you proposing then well, to try and protect some of those young people who you say aren't as vulnerable to COVID nineteen? Well, the, you know, the, the, again, this this. I, I think it needs to be clearer. I, you know, it's not clear to me that people are as aware how few younger people have been impacted mm-hmm. uh, by this from a health perspective, yet from a, an employment perspective, it has been, they have been by, by far, like not, it's not even close. The 20-somethings, the younger people have ha- been absolutely decimated in this in terms of being laid off, in terms of uh, going on to unemployment benefit. And, you know, all of these difficult questions have to be asked. Are younger people who are paying such a massive price um, is that the way to continue or should there be more scope for younger people to be able to return to work? Do you think going forward the government needs to look at a strategy other than lockdowns? I, I think... Which seems to be the strategy at the moment, if you listen to me. Well, I, you know, I've said it on here and, you know, many times uh, over the past year that I, I would much prefer to hear the government talk about what it's going to do, what it can do, rather than telling other people what they can't do. Uh, you know, during the summer, there was no increase in hospital capacity. You know, the government is spending absolutely gargantuan amounts of money, but that was not put in to expanding the state's capacity to deal with the health crisis. And that, you know, that is where I would prefer, particularly around the vaccine, where you're going to have a real see how different governments are capable of doing things with the rolling out of this vaccine. All right. As always, Dan O'Brien, thank you for your time this evening. That's all we have time for. Matt Cooper will be back here tomorrow night. And The Tonight Show is now available as a podcast. You can listen and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. For now, good night. Stay safe. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. 